Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward, prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting. Slate's parenting podcast, the Don't Test My Kids episode for Thursday, December 5th, 2013. This is our inaugural episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a senior editor at Slate. I am the dad of Lyra, who is eight, and Harper, who is six. I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate, the mother of Wally, who is eight months, Sam, who is three, and Harry, who is five. Hi, Allison. Hi, Dan. I'm in New York, and Dan's in D.C. And today, we're going to talk, uh, first of all, with Robert Kolker of New York Magazine about his recent article about whether there really is an opt-out revolution going on, not with women in the workplace, but in our schools, with parents opting their kids out of standardized tests. And then we'll talk about the new Disney animated movie, Frozen, and whether its portrayal of sisters rings true. Plus, we'll do recommendations, but first... We have our parenting fail or parenting triumph of the week. And I'll go first. And this week I have a parenting triumph, Allison. I'm happy to say. No way. Yes, I know. It's rare, (laughs) but it happened. So my triumph is that I let my daughter, Lyra, stay up until midnight last night to read the last Harry Potter book. Wait, on a school night. Yes. So I I realize now that that sounds like a fail when I say that. No, 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 no. But no, so she was really, really excited. And like she reads every night and usually we would poke our head into the room right at like 10 or something at some ungodly hour and be like, put your book away. It's time to go to sleep. But she was just so excited about this last Harry Potter book. And I knew she was like very determined to finish it. Like that was a goal she had set for herself. And I I remember how I felt like that about certain books when I was a kid that I just had to finish it. I wanted to finish it so badly. Yeah. So I just let her, I let it go. I let it go. And she was so happy this morning. Good job. I felt like, yes. So she was really tired also. And I assume (laughs) we'll get like a note home from her teacher. But I still, nevertheless, triumph. Keep in mind that you're calling it a triumph when she's whining at the dinner table tonight because she's exhausted. I will bear that in mind. Okay. Uh, Mine is going to be a fail this week. I'm sure there were some small triumphs, but a larger fail. This is actually a general fail that's been happening for quite some time, but it became more apparent over the holiday weekend. And I'd love listener advice on this. Uh, Basically, I am failing my middle child. The baby gets a lot of attention from me because he's crying and I hold him or I'm breastfeeding. And the oldest child is now finally old enough to play Uno and play checkers and play chess, which this weekend, as I said, it was really apparent because my parents were in town for Thanksgiving and and wanted to play all these games with him. And then the middle child is just totally lost and I don't have anything for him to do. And he acts out because he's looking for our attention. So if you are a parent of a middle child or a middle child your, yourself, email me at momanddad@slate.com. That's momanddad@slate.com, And give me some advice because I really actually like don't know how to get out of this stereotypically, this middle child syndrome that I feel like I'm already trapping my son in. So the problem is that obviously the baby demands attention. Right. And obviously you can do fun things with the older kid. But right. so is the issue really just that you can't think of anything that isn't boring to do with your middle no, kid? No, it's that there are two parents and three kids and one of them gets the shaft and it seems to always oh, be right. him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The old saying that when, once you have three kids, you're playing zone. Right. 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 Okay. Topic one, the opt-out movement. 
If you send your kids to public school, you have no doubt heard about these two big stories in education. There's the rollout of the Common Core, a huge new effort to transform K-12 education in America with new standards for what kids should be able to do at each grade level and tests to measure that. And then there's the opt-out movement, a small but vocal group of parents across the country who are pulling their kids out of standardized tests. Writer Bob Kolker recently wrote a piece for New York Magazine about the opt-outers in New York City, and we're so happy to have him here to talk about it. Hi, Bob. Hi, Allison. So you start off your story with a kid named Oscar Mata, who, according to his parents, loved school and did well until the standardized test started in third grade, I think. And then he started failing. His parents made the connection that testing caused Oscar to not like school and testing caused him to stop succeeding. And his parents aren't alone. Many of the parents you interviewed for your story blame testing for their child's academic struggle and anxiety. But isn't it just as possible that Oscar and other struggling kids stopped liking school because school simply became more challenging, as it does each year, and kids couldn't keep up? Why do you think his parents assumed the tests were to blame? That's a really good question, and it and it's one that you know, I hope comes out as you're reading about Oscar's story in, in the New York Magazine article. I mean, what you have here is um, school getting more serious earlier for every kid because standardized testing has become higher stakes. And with that seriousness comes, some say, a certain amount of tunnel vision. You know, you're, you're really only teaching to the test more often than you're doing anything more spontaneous or, or even, you know, more extracurricular, more involved, like field trips or projects or what they call extras like music and art. So, you know, it, it is a chicken or egg kind of issue for a, for a kid like that. I mean, I'm a parent. I, I have a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old. And, you know, there are only a few people who are opting out, very few people, microscopic statistically, but they're at the front lines of a swell of anxiety among every parent about these tests, not just the test itself, but how much class time is now being devoted to tests and what kind of so-called extras are falling away. The opting out of the test is largely symbolic. Opting out of test prep would be the bigger deal, but parents aren't doing that because that would mean pulling their kids out of, you know, in some instances, months of school, right? Yes, that came up constantly in the revisions of this article and in talking with my editor because we kept, both of us kept coming back to each other and saying the same thing. You can opt out of this test, but you can't opt out of school. So what happens year-round if you... Um, uh, are spending time prepping for a, a test that you're never going to take. And that's where the gesture does seem symbolic or political. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I've done enough education stories in, in New York City to know that every story winds up being about politics and about um, class often and um, about power and articulating power. And uh, this one's no different. It's interesting that you point out class because, you know, it's clear that one of the sole purposes of Common Core, one of the purposes of Common Core is to bring schools in in poorly performing areas to give them the same standards as schools in higher performing areas. And of course, that's often tied to class in very specific ways. And so that even was foregrounded recently when Arnie Duncan, the Secretary of Education, made this claim to a group of school superintendents that critics of Common Core are all white suburban moms who are worried that their kids aren't as genius as they thought they were. And now, did you see in your reporting in New York a real class divide in the way that people responded to these tests and this testing, or was it universal across all kinds and types of students? Well, the, there is a school in the village, the East Village, called the Earth School, you know, with a lot of progressively minded parents and teachers and administrators, and they had a ton of kids opting out 
compared to other schools. And so based on that, you could probably draw some conclusions. But really, they, there were 40 different schools represented. There were a lot in, in places like Upper Manhattan and Washington Heights, like the ones that I talked about in the article. And so I don't think you can generalize. But one thing you can, what one thought I have had on this story and others is that, you know, the most involved parents are the parents with the most time, the most spare time. So often they don't come from two career couples or they have jobs with flexibility that allow them to spend time to hang out in a school with a stopwatch and see how much class time is being lost. Were parents doing that? Did that happen? <laughs> well, yeah, well, or the, you know, the saying is that the most the most disgruntled parents happen to be the most involved parents. And I think that's true. Like you, in a public school system, you're, if you have the time to sit and really take close attention to what's going on, you're going to want to start making some adjustments to what you see. Your kids also might be the most anxious then because you're paying so much attention and you're anxious. I mean, Frank Bruni wrote this, you know, a column about, in response to the outrage about Common Core and the outrage about Arnie Duncan's comments, Bruni wrote this column saying that we're coddling our kids too much and that much of the anxiety that the kids are feeling about tests, all these reports about kids, you know, vomiting because they're so nervous about tests, which is one of the reasons that parents want to opt their kids out. Bruni's saying that a lot of this anxiety is actually coming from parents, not from teachers, not from administrators. It's coming from parents who are so anxious about how their kids will perform. Did, did you find that in your reporting? Well, I think if you, were, if you were purely interested in the Common Core standards from a policy point of view, you'd be tempted to just, you know, uh, wash your hands and say, yeah, that's the problem. It's just people, you know, disgruntled people because standards are good. They do lift all boats in a way that a decentralized school system doesn't. Yeah. And, and, and so in theory, I think that would be the case. But this is about theory versus practice. And in practice, what happens is even when the Common Core standards, which are meant to encourage, you know, a higher rigor and a lot of critical thinking, even when they are debuted in a system, they are rolled out in such a way that anxious administrators and anxious teachers with a minimum of training are forced to do it on the fly. And they end up, you know, guess what? They end up teaching kids to the test and doing nothing but test prep. And there's nobody out there on any side of this issue who believes that, you know, you should be spending every hour at school doing test prep. And, And yet that's what's happening in practice in a lot of places. So it's about theory versus practice. Is there just right. no way to roll these things out in a logical way? I mean, if the actual point of this program and the goals of this program are good, if we all agree to that, I don't know I don't know if we do, but I mean, I think I do from, from what I know. But the problem is the implementation and it just being foisted upon these schools with like immediate results expected. I mean, that that's the problem, right? It's not necessarily test. The fact that our kindergartners are being taught to bubble in is not inherently such this such a horrible thing. It's it's that it's all happening at once. Yeah, I mean, this could be chapter one of a story that has a very happy ending. I mean, people talk a lot about Massachusetts a lot, which a generation ago did something similar, and there was tremendous pushback and a lot of you know outcry at the time. And now Massachusetts is just kicking butt up and down the schoolyard in terms of test scores. And so maybe that'll happen nationwide, and this will be a great success story. But half of the problem here with the rollout is about is about intergovernmental lack of cooperation. The state says something, and it's up to the school districts within the state to do something about it, and they never follow through. And so suddenly kids are taking a test that they have no, haven't been you know, taught the material for, and then the parents get upset, and they strike back, and everybody accuses everyone else of having hidden agendas of wanting to torpedo the program. I mean, the one thing that, that so many people agree on is that the principles behind the Common Core are, are admirable. I mean, it may be the only 
federal program during the Obama administration that both parties ever agreed on. And, and yet now it, it appears to be swept up in the, in the anti-testing movement. And this is a curriculum or a set of standards, rather, that, that was designed to avoid test prep, you know, to, to make you think critically and not turn you into a robot. Right. And it's amplified in New York, of course, because unlike in most places in New York, these tests that kids are taking specifically are keyed to advancement, right? You don't advance from the third grade to the fourth grade unless you do well on this test. Yeah, New York, New York City is unique in New York State because it's the only school district, and the city is its own school district, that, that has this rule that says, you know, the, if you, the, the bottom 10% of scores on this test um, won't be able to move on to the next grade, and that creates a ton of anxiety. So that's one thing. But the second thing is then there's the question of the broader question, the crunchier question of what are we teaching kids and what do we really want them to learn? And in, in the third grade, do they have to just know how to read and write, or should they know a little bit about social studies? Should they know a little about music or art? Do kids learn differently? Should everyone be tested the same way? All those sorts of things that in a different era might have really had some traction. I mean, think about, I mean, I'm 45. When I was a kid, I did not take big standardized tests every year. I remember you didn't, you didn't one, take the Iowa test every year? I, I seem to remember the CAT when I was in elementary school somewhere, and then the next test I took might have been the PSAT. And certainly the, the results of those test scores didn't have a great bearing on my future. Right. I, we took the Iowa test in fourth grade, and that was it. But they mostly we didn't. didn't they they mostly, other, in New York City, is different. But as you said, they mostly don't have a bearing on kids' futures. Other places, it's about teacher, you know, teacher assessment, which is its own problem. I mean, it's definitely a mess. <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I'm certainly sympathetic to the idea that, you know, that there ha- I, maybe it's arbitrary, but there has to be a line somewhere and that kids need to either meet standards or or keep trying. <laughs> Bob, can I ask you, did you, in, I mean, in the course of reporting this story, did you think to yourself, Jesus, maybe I should, maybe my kid should opt out? In our case, we did not. Um, we did actually, we, we did agree to opt our child out of um, a field test that was brought to our school. The field test issue is its own other issue where, um, you know, if you ever wonder how these tests are made, they actually are focus grouped on students. They throw in some questions into tests that don't count for anything just to see if they work, and then they use them for real the next time. But in in New York, they set up separate field tests where they actually yank kids out of class when they could have been learning something new and had them try out these standardized tests that didn't count for anything for anyone as sort of free research and development for the test company. And so you know, the parents in our school sort of stood up and said, no, thank you, and yeah. opted out of that. But but I never had I never had strong feelings about Opting my child out of that. It's for us. It was. It's more of a global dread that comes when you hear that suddenly the kids in your school won't have science because uh, they'll get it in dribs and drabs from their teacher, but the science specialist is leaving and they're spending that money on something more closely aligned to the Common Core, and that, that's where it starts to get a little sketchy. I have one last question. I've heard and read people compare the anti-test movement to um, the anti-vax movement and that if you know, you're making these individual choices about what's best for your kid, but you're hurting the larger community in your school, you're hurting the teachers, you're hurting other kids whose parents are not as involved or don't want to opt out by pulling your kids out. Are you sympathetic to that argument? Do you see it? Does this hurt minority kids? Does this hurt kids who ha- who who need more help? I think there might be overlap in terms of the people who are anti-vax and opt-outers, but I, I don't think it's a fair comparison because 
in terms of the mission because the anti-vaxxers are worried about the health of their child and their child alone, whereas the opt-outers are truly doing a symbolic gesture because they feel like it's more like the civil rights movement. You know, they're saying um, every child is suffering and the only way to change the system is to demonstrate. So they're doing it more as a demonstration. Dan, are you going to pull or are you going to opt your kids out? Uh, no, I don't have the energy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it comes down to. OK, thank you so much for joining us, Bob. Everyone should go read Bob's story. Uh, New York Magazine. It's called The Opt-Outers. Thank you so much. Yeah, so much paperwork. I can't fill out all those forms. <laughs> I'd rather have my kids just take the test. I mean, I'm new to this. I'm new to public school. My oldest son is only in kindergarten, so it's really hard for me to say, you know, how I feel about this stuff. But generally, I guess my attitude so far is to chill out and go with the flow. Well, and I have a bad attitude about it because I I benefited from standardized tests. I'm a good tester. I just was Dan just means to say that he did very well on I I would like to tell the world my SAT scores. Now. No, no, I just <laughs> mean it like it helped me and I see it already that Lyra is also good at that. She deals with like multiple choice tests and the way that you should deal with them if you are smart about getting them right. And so it's hard for me to get that worried about tests barring her showing some huge amount of anxiety because I bet she'll lace them. Right. So right. then she'll do fine. I mean, on the other hand, I don't want them just spending all their time teaching of the test but you know i don't either accept that if that's how you learn (laughs) i mean i don't want them being taught to the test either but if in order for them to be prepared for their lives as grown-ups it means a little bit less creativity and a little more teaching the test i think i'm okay with that i think i am like we are falling behind in this country and you know i am certainly not an education expert but sure i want some lovely bubble experience for my kids and all tons of outdoor time and but i also want them to to succeed as grown-ups do you want them to be useful cogs in a corrupt society, Allison? That's what you want. <laughs> Moving on to topic two, Disney's new animated movie, Frozen, which uh, opened the day before Thanksgiving and made $93 million in the five-day weekend. In Arendelle's fair kingdom, a ruler did appear. Born with a secret power so great, alone she stayed in fear. Get it together. Control it. Although the force was hidden... One day she let it go. Elsa. Sorcery. And all the land was covered in eternal ice and snow. It's completely frozen. It was a huge success, and I reviewed this movie for Slate. It's about uh, two princesses in a sort of vaguely Nordic land called Arendelle. And um, the older princess, uh, Princess Elsa, who's voiced by Adina Menzel, has this power or curse, I guess, depending on how you look at it, where things that she touches in moments of high anxiety or high dudgeon turn to ice and she can blow snow out of her hands and it's all very cool. But she wants to hide that because she's terrified that people will find out. And that leads her to shut out her younger sister, um, Anna, who's played by Kristen Bell. And um, then eventually it all comes out and she freezes the whole kingdom and sends it into permanent nuclear winter and runs off into the mountains and Anna has to go find her and help her. And sisterhood is explored. And there's uh, a love story. And there's a love story and there's a prince who's faithless. It's spoilers. Anyway, we won't spoil too much, but I reviewed the movie for Slate and I liked it okay, but I did not love it. And what the main reason I did not love it 
is that as the father of two daughters, I thought the sister-sister story, the sister-sister relationship in this movie was just super undercooked. Like it's this movie is very reminiscent of Tangled, another recent Disney hit, in that it it uses a very sharp familiar relationship and sort of explores it in the guise of a fairy tale. And in Tangled, it was the mother daughter relationship, and that movie that was so like sharp and subversive and and weird for a Disney movie that relationship between Mother Gothel and Rapunzel that I really loved that and thought it it really clicked with people and with me and with my kids. But in Frozen, I felt like the sisters were just like. There was not that much to that relationship. We never really saw them like liking each other even that much before they were torn apart by fate. And they just seemed like two princesses who happened, I guess, to be related. But I was not like that compelled by it. But then, so over the weekend, a million of my Facebook friends posted on Facebook that they saw this movie and it was amazing. And all the ones who had sisters were like, it perfectly captured my relationship with my sister. And they would like tag their sisters in the messages and then their sisters would like comment hugs. And then and I was like, I didn't oh see God, this at people all. People are weird. Your friends people are, are strange. Uh, what did your daughters think? They really liked the movie and enjoyed it. But like, they're not like running around the house calling each other Elsa and Anna and reenacting it or anything. They seem to just, they liked the, the funny talking snowman and the reindeer and like they did not emotionally connect to it in any major way. Yeah. I think. I liked the funny talking snowman too. I mean, I he found this movie to be, yeah, he was very funny. To be pretty though, otherwise blah. I mean, it was actually good to look at. I didn't see it in 3D. Did you see it in 3D? I did. It's pretty nice in 3D. Yeah. But the sister thing, I don't know. I mean, I kind of think I'm the younger sister uh, to my older sister. It was just the two of us. And there's certainly what happens in this movie is they the early scenes, they're very, very close. But as Dan says, it's just like it's one early scene, really, right. until the older sister, Elsa, has to basically keep herself locked in her room so that she doesn't hurt anyone with her superpowers. So her, her, the younger sister, Anna, comes and knocks on her door and says, come build a snowman with me and sings a song about come play with me. And she, you know, you see them getting older and older and Elsa never comes out of her room. That happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> My sister and I were very, very close, and I'm happy to report that we're close again. But there was a period of time when my sister started shutting her door, or as we say, as she used to say, shut it till it clicks. Oh, man. She'd tell me to shut the door until it clicks, and I'd have to pull it. And I don't know why I would do this, but I'd pull really hard until I heard that clicking noise. And, you know, she wanted to be on the phone with her friends, or I, don't, I guess I would say boys, although I don't think there were, there weren't a lot of boys in either of our young lives. But... <laughs> Right but now, your sister definitely... is, your enraged sister is picking up the phone right now. <laughs> She's fine. She's happy. It's great. Everything <laughs> turned out well. But yeah, she shut me out. I mean, as older sisters do, and I would imagine older brothers do too, although I'm guessing two brothers aren't like, don't sort of pour their hearts out to each other and then the split happens. My sister was, you know, my best friend and she was really good to me as sisters go for sure. But yes, that happens. The older sister moves on. She, you know, and the younger sister still wants a playmate. So I guess I, I found that to be accurate. I don't know if I thought that that made the movie, that relationship was interesting in the movie. I guess it was accurate, but, I, you know, I, I'm more curious. It wasn't enough necessarily. It wasn't like, enough to carry yeah. the movie, the emotional heft of the movie. And, I, and obviously it wasn't because then they had this love story, which was pretty, you know, kind of cliche and traditional. And then the whole princess thing, which, like, I generally, actually, recently we were talking about princesses on the Double X Gab Fest because we were talking about Goldie Blocks. And I was 
saying that I find the like dis- without having daughters, I find the disdain for everything pink and princessy to be a little extreme. Like I don't quite get it why mothers, especially, it's like this weird self-loathing that like we would do anything to have our daughters not like princesses instead of just being like, eh, they like princesses as a phase, they'll get over it just like boys like cars. No one's ever appalled that boys like cars. However, (laughs) in this movie, when Elsa (laughs) turns from regular queen into like ice queen and she's wearing this like va-va-voom sexy ice queen dress and her boobs are all push-up broad and her waist is tiny and her long, I mean, I, I, you know, I kind of gagged, so. Did, did your do your girls react? What what is their where oh, are they? They, the they were they were spectrum. they were blown away by Ice Queen Elsa. They gorgeous. Were like, that's, that's gorgeous. Yeah, that's yes. exactly what I'm going for. Yeah, I mean uh, that to me seemed like a moment that was designed, maybe not even so much for the little girls in the audience as for the like Broadway show tune loving uh, Idina Menzel fans who are or going just to that the movie. dads. I think yeah. there was a single man in the, <laughs> in the theater when I saw it this afternoon that like gasped a little bit. He was he was probably <laughs> gasping at the song. But no, yes, I don't have a major problem with princesses because my kids have basically both outgrown them. Like the, they were both in princess phases at one point and now they don't care that much about them. And princess to them now has become what I think it is for many kids, which is it is a synonym for spunky girl who causes problems and then solves them, right? Like there's very, in the last few Disney princess movies, there has been very little traditionally princessy about those characters. And so now princessy just means, princess just means heroine, you know, and it's as wide ranging as to include the girl from Brave or the princess and the princess and the frog who is poor and lives in a like a ramshackle house in New Orleans. Right. They're all princesses. Everyone's a princess. That's and interesting. So it's like an all-purpose term for a girl hero at this point. Yeah. It yeah. means almost nothing. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't, they, it didn't, it did, that doesn't bother me. And, and I'm glad that my children love this movie, but I feel like there are a lot of things about sisters that are a lot riper for exploitation, I guess, from a story standpoint than just that the kid sisters get sad when their older sisters don't want to play with them. Like and, what? You know, competition? I, like competition, yes. Like competition for parents' love. And of course, the parents in this movie are long gone. They drown in a boat because it's a <laughs> Disney movie, so who needs parents? <laughs> and like the competition between them or the way that a relationship evolves over time as opposed to just this on-off switch of first I love you and then I can't talk to you because ice comes out of my hands <laughs> or the way that they can compete over friends or boys even, God forbid. Or, I mean, there are just a lot of interesting things about sisters I think that I see in my children every day that are more interesting than just do you want to build a snowman, which right. is, to me is like what this boiled down to. I think I just realized that when the ice comes out of our hands, it's like when I saw I found my sister had a cigarette in her hand for the first time. That's exactly it. It's a revelatory (laughs) moment. No, but I agree about... uh, And then your sister fled into the mountains to smoke. (laughs) I'm just bad talking my sister. I did. I sobbed to my parents when I found out that she drank and smoked. It was horrible. I was such a goody two-shoes. It would have certainly been more interesting if one of the sisters was not attractive. I mean, you know... Well, good luck with that. (laughs) It's, I mean, the, I will say the one like great thing about this Disney movie, the one subversive thing about this Disney movie, not to spoil too much, is the prince, right? That the right. though I saw it coming a mile away, my kids did not, and so the transformation that occurs to the prince in this movie is a big deal, I think, for veteran Disney watchers. I think we can spoil this for the parents. The prince is a bad guy. Oh my God! Do you ten thousand angry emails are coming your way? <laughs> yeah, the prince. 
looks great at first, and then he turns out that he is the bad guy. The, the handsome prince is the bad guy in this movie. And the good guy is like a the guy she actually falls for is just a, a regular Joe, working class. Just a regular, studly, handsome, regular Joe. Right. Yeah. Right. Well built. Yeah. Well built. Nice <laughs> nose, I thought. All right. So let's do recommendations. Um, you want to go first? Sure. I, this weekend, took my kids to see a show called Feet Don't Fail Me Now. Have you heard of this show? No. Okay. I don't know what you'll, what, I mean, I think I was so glad my husband didn't come with me because he would have just hated it, but we <laughs> loved it. I'm still singing it as I walk to work. Feet don't fail me now. Feet don't fail me now. <laughs> it's just this great show of tap dancing and drumming and beatboxing and all different kinds of music. Every different song, my five-year-old would turn to me and say, ask, what kind of music is this? What kind of music is this? And oh you can God, get up and dance. Like and I really loved it. And it's touring all over the country. It was in New York for like two weeks, I think, but I can I see on the website right now that it's going to Tulsa, Hot Springs, Arkansas, Medford, Oregon, all over the place. So check it out. It's The website is rhythmiccircus.com, and it's called Feet Don't Fail Me Now. And I think it's great for, I took my little kids, but actually they were by far the youngest kids there. So it's I think it's good up to, you know, tweens. Awesome. I will definitely look for that when, I, when my kids and I go to Medford, Oregon. <laughs> uh, I recommend um, this great old forgotten, semi-forgotten James Thurber children's story. Mm. Um, It's called The Thirteen Clocks. It is a fairy tale. It does indeed have a princess, though the main character is a wicked ice-cold duke who stops time. Um, Wicked ice-cold duke. Yes, his (laughs) hands never get warm and he always has to wear gloves. It's very funny. It's very deadpan. It is sort of philosophical. It's very Thurber-esque. It has been out of print for a really long time, but... It just got republished by the New York Review Children's Collection. It is really super funny and charming and great and is like a great sort of lost old-timey children's book that I think modern children would also key into because it has a sort of sense of modern irony that I think kids are used to these days when maybe, I don't know, 50 years ago maybe they weren't. That sounds great. My daughter has not read it yet because it's not Harry Potter, but I bet she will and she will love it. I really loved it. Um, And I think it's good for like seven to 11 year olds or even a super smart six year old for you to read to her would be Mm -hmm. great. So those are recommendations. Thank you everyone for listening. The next episode of mom and dad are fighting will come your way December 19th. If you've got a topic that you want us to talk about or if you want to give us feedback, you want to argue with us about testing or tell us that we're crazy, Frozen was amazing, or that feet don't fail me now is terrible, please email us. You can email us at momanddad at slate.com. That's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment on iTunes while you're there. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Thank you, Allison. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.